midst of closing out, just a couple more messages in the, Paul's letter to the First Corinthians, closing out this series that was called Radically Reoriented Together um, on First Corinthians. So turn your Bibles to First Corinthians 16. This is verses 1 through 11. Um, this is God's holy inspired word for us today. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And it seems advisable that I should go also. They will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. Perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want you to, to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this really practical word. This practical response to all of the wonderful teaching that you've been giving us in Corinthians. Lord, thanks for giving us a practical word because you're a practical God. Lord, I pray that you would help us receive from you Receive your word as it's intended. Let it, let it sink deep into our hearts and minds. And may we respond to your word with faith and joy. God, we pray that you would in, enable each and every one of us to hear from you today. Enable me to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we began this series on, on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we, we titled it Radically Reoriented Together. And why we did that is because the gospel of Jesus Christ, what the whole letter to the, the Corinthian church, it, it, it radically reoriented how they viewed each other. It radically reoriented how they viewed their relationships, the priority of their lives, what they were living for. And that's really the truth of the Christian life, is that if you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've been transformed by him, you've been made new, you've been resurrected, so the, the old man is dead. You've now been given a new nature, a, a new personality, if you will. Uh, uh, you've been born again. And if that's the case, then, then the gospel is meant to radically reorient us together. It's meant to, to radically change everything about us. You're, you're no longer living for yourself. It's, it's radical. At the very core of who you are, the gospel changes us. It, it changes our desires. It changes what we live for. It changes our priorities. That's radical in every way. It reorients us so that we're not just living for ourselves and the world is centered around us, but so that we are centered around Jesus now. And then it, it does something that transforms us. You see, the Corinthians, they were plagued by all kinds of division and disunity, and so the gospel radically reoriented them, but it didn't just do this at individuals. It, it reoriented them together. It, it broke down all the dividing walls of class and of, of Jew and Gentile, of, of slave or Scythian or Greek, and it, it broke down all the dividing walls. And it reoriented them together. And then what we've been seeing over the past few weeks as we've been in Paul's letter to the Corinthians is he's been, he's been really just opening up the beauty of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And our hope is the glorious resurrection of Christ. The hope is that, that this life is really not all we're living for, that, that he has already resurrected us. He's already made us a new man or a new woman. He's already born us again. But, but he'll also completely resurrect our physical, mortal bodies as well. And so that's meant to transform how we live. And so Paul has been talking about that over the last probably the, the, well, the biggest chapter, really, of, of the Bible on the resurrection. and all of chapter 15, he was talking all about the resurrection. And then now, all of a sudden, he shifts gears. And it's kind of like he went from going 60 miles an hour to all of a sudden, he drops it into reverse. And you're like, what in the world, Paul? You were, you were talking about the glories of the resurrection. And now, you're talking about giving and supporting and partnering together. What's up with that, Paul? And I think that's because... He intends for the Christian life to be lived very practically, lived very realistically. You know, we don't just live in a, in a hypothetical. We don't just live in, in theological terms where these wonderful truths of Scripture affect our hearts and minds and we do nothing about them. No, there's, there's, there's ways where we're called to live radically different. And so he actually gives some very practical ways that we're called to join together in gospel ministry. So this gospel ministry that we've received, now it transforms us, so we're called to live in different ways. And there's, there's five things we're going to look at in this passage today is that we're called to join together in gospel ministry practically. We're called to join together in gospel ministry practically. He gets really practical here. And sometimes we don't like that because it it kind of affects where we live, right? It, it affects how we live. But he gets very practical. And it's personal. This is not detached. How should Christians live? And you know, he says, each of you. It's personal. We're to join together in gospel ministry personally. And we're also to join in gospel ministry proportionally. Not everybody is able to do the same amounts of things, same kinds of things. And so he says, join together in gospel ministry proportionally. And then he wants us to do that purposefully. Purposefully. Don't just live the Christian life without considering how you're living, without planning, without um, looking forward and saying, okay, how, how will I plan for living this Christian life out as Jesus has called me to? And then it's also in partnerships together. We're not alone. And isn't that what the whole, the whole book or the whole letter to the First Corinthians is about? Is that he's called us together. He's building us into the church. He's building us together. Because he wants us to live, to join together in gospel partnerships. Well, right prior to this passage, as I mentioned, he's been talking about the resurrection and the fact that we're going to get a resurrection body. And that excites me because I'm often aware of the fact that my body, it is, it is wasting away. <laughs> and he delivers this truth about how they're going to have this this future imperishable, immortal body where death itself will be done away with. And it's a glorious truth. And then he finishes this section and he erupts into thanksgiving and he says, you know, thanks be to God who's given us the victory. And that's what we talked about last week. He's given us the victory in Jesus Christ. We have victory in Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, he kind of comes to a crashing stop. But in your Bibles, we have, we have different chapter breaks. They didn't have those when the Bible was originally written. So right on the tail end, as soon as he is ending, look, look back in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I think we have the passage for you. At the very, the very end of the last passage, right before these verses, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, what's the therefore about? It's, it's looking back to the resurrection, because of the resurrection, because of this glorious truth, because of the victory that we have in him, he says, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor 
is not in vain. What he's saying is these great truths about the resurrection and our victory, they're meant to enable us to be steadfast, to be stable, to be immovable, to always abound in the work of the Lord. And then he immediately transitions. And, and why he does that, he said, this is, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to abound in the work of the Lord. It looks, like, it looks like giving. It looks like partnering. It looks like being purposeful. It looks like personally, practically responding. This is, this is what it looks like to always abound in the work of the Lord, and it's really practical. Giving is not something that he considered optional. It was He gets really practical right here. He immediately goes from the resurrection and the victory that we have to applying it, and he does it really practically. So he says, join together with me in gospel ministry practically. Join together in gospel ministry practically. There, there was no hype here. You know, this is not a giving campaign. He doesn't have any chart on the wall with a little graph showing you how high he's going. He doesn't have any awards he's giving out to people who have given different amounts. This is, this is no, there's no gimmicks. There's no manipulation. No emotional contortions. No pressure. No gimmicks. But it is very practical, isn't it? He goes from the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the victory we have, and says, now look, because of that, God's radically reoriented you. Now I want you to give practically. Practically do something to partner together in this mission. It was very practical. They wanted him to set aside money each and every week. Maybe he wanted them to practically demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ. That's been a theme all throughout the letter to the church of Corinth. He wants them to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ in a real practical way. And by the way, there's, there's nothing better to demonstrate your unity with someone with a cause or political party or a person than to give to them, right? Today, if, if somebody gives to a cause or a political party, they're immediately associated. That becomes public. They're immediately associated with that cause or that party. And it's assumed, and I think rightly so, that they agree with that cause or that political party because they've given towards it, because it means something to them. Giving, it actually speaks so loudly of where our priorities are, of where our motives are, where our alignment is, and what our affiliation is, is that in, in the past few years, when, when it's discovered that, oh my gosh, people gave to this wrong cause, or people gave to this other cause that we don't like, that they're outed or fired or let go, it, it has dramatic effects, because it really reflects the alignment of our hearts. And Paul says, really practically, I want you to give practically to show the alignment of your heart. For the church in Corinth, it'd be a tangible way to show that, that God has broken down the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles. These, these warring parties, they hated each other. You, I don't think we can understand today when we think, oh, Jews, Gentiles. No, they hated each other. The Jews thought that, that Gentiles, Greeks, were just dirty, that they were, they were worthless, that they were godless people completely unable to be redeemed. And the Gentiles, because of that, really hated the Jews. And giving would be a practical way of showing that they were no longer oriented by human orientation. They, they were now been radically reoriented so that they, they love one another because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And also it would provide for practical needs. The church in Jerusalem was poor. They had experienced a lot of famine. They had experienced hardships and difficulties. Um, they had experienced persecution. A lot of them had lost their jobs and their livelihoods because the Jewish sect, the, the Pharisees who, who ran everything, they 
they made it so that nobody did business with the Christians in Jerusalem. And so there was practical needs. And so he wants to give to the poor. And there's something important for us to look at too is that we're called to do that as well. We're called to reorient the way we live, not just, just to say, hey, they didn't earn it. No, we're called to, to give to people in need. It was a way of self-consciously not allowing any factions or divisions to separate them in the church too. Other scriptures, he refers to this collection as fellowship or service or grace or blessing. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, he wrote to them, I mean, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he wrote about the same collection again, and he says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace. This wasn't, this wasn't legalistic giving he was calling them to. He was calling this an act of grace excelling in an act of grace, excelling in giving because of, of the excellent grace that we've received, because of how God has poured out his grace on us, we can excel in giving as well. It says in verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the motivation, this practical giving that he's talking about. It's the fact that Jesus Christ in all of his riches, he became poor for us so that we might, in our poverty, become rich in him. And we can see some really important truths from this practical message. It's, it's really, he gets down to the, the really nitty-gritty of things. He gets, in verse 2, he says, on the first day of every week, that's Sunday, he says, put aside something and store it up. It was very practical. But did you notice this? It's also very personal. He, he calls them to join together in gospel ministry personally. He doesn't say, hey, the church as a whole, I want you to give together as your ministry. Now, that's good, and we do that as a church as well. We give a portion of what we have received from you all. We give to other ministries as well. But, but he's saying each of you, this is individuals, this is personal. He says each of you put something aside. It would have personally affected them. Paul doesn't specify the amount, but he says every Sunday, each of you put something aside personally. Each, each of them is, is called to respond each and every person. So, lest we think that this scripture doesn't apply to us, each of you implies to each of us. They were each being called to give by God, and each of them were responsible before God for what they gave. And sometimes when we hear a call to give, we can think, oh, that really applies to other people. But you know what? God gets his work done through individuals that make up the church, and he wants each one of us to put something aside to those who don't have on top of what they were already, this is on top of what they're giving to the local church. This is, this is them giving generously to the poor, giving generously to churches, giving generously to the church planting. And it implies that everybody's a participate in some way. I think it's meant to provoke us, really. Are, are we, each one of us, not just giving locally to this need, but are we, are we giving to others in need? Do we see our possessions? Do we see our talents, our time, our, as expressions of our gratitude? Do, do we see that that's the kind of life that God is calling each and every one of us to, that he calls us each practically to give, to be generous as he's been generous to us? I think of how I was affected when I'm, I was going into pastor's college about, I guess it was 98, so however many years ago that was, um, when we were in the pastor's college. And, and when we were there, we did, we, I wasn't able to work at all, and so I didn't have very much money. And I remember someone coming up to me, they noticed that I was wearing some ragged out tennis shoes, and um, they took me out, I was like, hey, I'm going to get you a pair of tennis shoes. So they took me shopping and bought me a pair of tennis shoes. And now it might seem silly and small, but for me that really affected me. 
because they, they were looking out for my needs. They noticed something. They, it was very practical, and they personally took it on themselves to do something about that. Now, they didn't tell anybody else. They didn't make mention of that. They didn't, they didn't brag about it, but it really affected me, and I, I think that's what we're called to do is to, to look for those practical needs personally. Now, he also says something else, too. Not just look to join together in gospel ministry practically, join together in gospel ministry personally, but we also join together in gospel ministry proportionally. Look, look down your Bible. It says, as, as, as he may prosper. You know, today, it, it's estimated that about 49%, this is actually pretty high compared to other nations, and so this is good, but 49% of Americans give to charity. And, but of that percentage, the average income, of the 49% of Americans who give to charity, the average income donated is about 3 to 5%. Now, the surprising thing I read that was uh, the, of the households that make less than 100,000, then those households that make less than 50,000 are the highest givers percentage wise, are lower income houses. Households making 100,000 to a million donate the least amount of their income to charity, between 24 to 2.6%. Back in the Old Testament, they would have been um, called to give not just 10%, the tithe, but they would have been called to give somewhere between 23 and 30% if you add up all the different numbers. But Paul, he's not doing that here. He's not, he's not about giving some legalistic percentages. He's not about giving specifics. He says, no, give in proportion to how God's prospered you. Don't give like the world gives. When you get more, you keep more. No, he says, when you get more, give more. Give proportionally. Not everybody's going to be able to give the same amount. So don't, don't feel guilt or condemnation if you're in a place where you're not able to give. But if God has prospered you, he says give in the, it, according to how God's prospered you. Some will be able to give more. Some won't be able to give much at all. But they were to give as they might prosper. They would be given in proportion to how God had prospered them. That meant that each person had to personally reflect on how God prospered them and decide to give freely and willingly. I like how he put it in 2 Corinthians 9 when he's still referring to this offering later. He says, the point of this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written, he has distributed freely, is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And he goes on from there. But we're to give, and the giving is to be proportional. We're to consider how God has prospered us and say, God, because you prospered me, because you in every way have poured out your riches on me, Lord, I want to give just like you. So it was personal, it was practical, it was proportional, but it was also purposeful. He wants them to join together in gospel ministry purposefully. And he tells them, look, every day, every, every Sunday, the first day of the week, and that was because they had reoriented their calendar around the resurrection. They, they celebrated the Lord's Day now on the first day of the week instead of the, the seventh day. And they shifted from resting on the seventh day to resting on the first day, and they, they shifted to worship. And so now he's saying, as part of your regular worship, I want you to think about how you can set aside money to give. That's, that's why we have an offering 
each Sunday. It's not just provide for practical needs of the church, but because it's a way that we can remind ourselves of who we're worshiping. We can remind ourselves of, of who is first and foremost in our hearts. It's a way that we can express that by giving, saying that, Lord, you are the one who is first and foremost in my life. Lord, you are my priority. And so he says, set aside on the first day when you gather. And then he also gets really purposeful. He says, don't do that when I come there. I don't, I don't want you to collect when I come because I don't want you to, to do it to, to impress me. And I don't want to know how much you give. And, and that's true for me too. I, I actually don't know how much anybody here gives and I don't want to know that. I don't, I don't want to be affected by that. But he, he talks about it being purposeful. And there's an enduring principle that it's not to give to the church in Jerusalem, but it's to give to others in need, to be purposeful in our giving. You know, I think we can, we're called to give towards churches and church plants that, that have needs that are above and beyond our own local church. And one, one way that we as a church, we do that, and one way that I want to make you aware of is that we give to a church that's called City of Refuge Church. They're, they're in Columbia. They're in the Eau Claire neighborhood. They're, it's a, it's a, a lower-income neighborhood that is um, kind of shifted from being middle class to more impoverished. And um, there are direct needs in that community in the ways they can minister to that community. And prior to this, we, we were giving to um, Reconcile Church across town. Now they're self-sustaining. By the way, that's awesome news, by the way. They're self-sustaining. We don't, we, don't, we don't need to give to them anymore. They're, they're self-sustaining as a church. They're doing well. But now we're saying, great, well, how can we give to other churches that are in need? So we're giving to City of Refuge Church. We give to Church in Hard Places with Acts 29. We, we, we used to give to Japan. And by the way, we get to have uh, Jerry and Wilson is going to come with us in about a month. And wouldn't it be cool if we can set aside, if, if each of us could set aside money and say, Get, we're going to give to him above and beyond what we've already committed as a church? We've already designated a certain percentage of our income to go to that church, but, but I, would, I would encourage you, hey, go online, go, go to our giving portal, hit the little drop down that says City of Refuge, and then give individually. So I want, I want to give on top of what we already committed to them. Wouldn't it be cool if we could surprise them and say, hey, man, in the last month, people have given on their own on top of what we committed to you? Because we, we, want, we want to support you. We want to be partnering with you in gospel ministry. We want to be a part of what you're doing there. We want to be a part of affecting the poor in that neighborhood. We want to be a part of affecting the gospel ministry in the Eau Claire neighborhood. So we're going to continue to give as a church, but I encourage you to give as individuals on top of that, on top of what you're already doing. Let's say, how can we give to those in need? God establishes, he builds his church through ordinary means here. That's, that's what we see. It's, it's very purposeful, but... He establishes and builds the church through the very ordinary means of giving. We get to part, be a part of making disciples all over the place and reconcile and city of refuge and the other churches we partner together with. When, in about a month from now, we're gonna go to Dominican Republic and partner together with them. Aaron and I are gonna be meeting with a, uh, a man, uh, Imad Sami, from uh, Initiative Ministries in Egypt. And what a privilege it is to partner together with other believers and have a share in the work that they do for the kingdom of God. And he's purposeful. He gives all kinds of details. He says, hey, I want you to assign people to go with this, and I'm gonna give them a letter. I want you to assign people. And, and he's, he's purposeful because he wants to walk in integrity. And I think there's, that's important for us to see as well, is that how we handle finances is important. How we handle our money is important. So he wants them to, to have integrity. And so he says, I, I wanna make sure that you send your representatives that you appoint, not me, um, so that that way I, there's some accountability there. And so he wants people from the church to go along with him to carry his gift. And, and as a church, we want to walk in integrity too. We have two men who are not on staff, not paid by the church. We have uh, Dan Payne and, and Doug Young. They are um, 
They are not uh, in any way compensated by the church, but they have oversight and input of our finances. We want to walk in integrity. We want to be purposeful in how we handle our finances. And by the way, if you have questions or concerns about how we spend money, you can ask them if you don't want to ask us. But ask yourself, am I, am I purposeful in how I give? Am I purposeful in how I think about my money? Or do I just spend it on what I desire? Does my worship of giving have purpose? What does my giving or lack of giving reveal about what's important to me and my family? Do I view giving purposefully or do I just kind of, is this a mere external duty that I just kind of fall into or is it an act of worship and thanksgiving to God? Now there are many verses, Paul's also encouraging the church to join together in gospel ministry partnerships. He wants them to join together in gospel ministry partnerships. You see, the gospel ministry that, that Paul carried out, it wasn't alone. He, he labored together. And in laboring together, both the gospel was communicated and demonstrated. And as we join together with each other in gospel ministry, the gospel not only is communicated, but is demonstrated. By our love for one another, we can, we can see that, that we're disciples of Jesus. That others will see, by our love for each other, outside of all of the differences, the things that normally separate us, people will see that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so in five to seven, he's not just giving some travel itinerary. He does that, and, he, and, and later on they hammer him for not, not doing what he talks about in 2 Corinthians. But he says, you know, if the Lord wills, he says, I'm going to go to Macedonia, and then I want to stay with you or spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey. He's talking about a gospel partnership. He has, he, this is not dispassionate ministry. Paul cares about the church. Do you care about the church? Do you care about other people in the church? He says, I, I want to be with you. Man, I love gathering together on Sunday mornings, not because I have some weird love of preaching, because I just love, uh, I love, I love talking to people like this. No, it's because I, I want to be with people. That's my favorite part of Sunday is that I get to talk to people. I get to be with people. I get to be encouraged by people. I get to hear people singing. When, when, I, when I earlier didn't know all the words of the song and I paused for a moment, I was listening to all of you singing and it was encouraging to my soul. We're together partnering in the gospel. Do you see yourselves as fellow partners in the gospel? And he wants them to help him on his journey. There were very practical things. He wants them to probably send companions with him to probably provide food and supplies for him. But he also just wants to spend time with them because his view of other people has been radically reoriented by the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you view other people? Do you view other people as gospel partners? Other, other people in this church, other people who are believers, do you view them as gospel partners? Or do you view them as competition? Do you view them as a hassle? Do you view them as an inconvenience? Do you view them as people to avoid? You see, the gospel radically reorients us so that, that we live in partnership with other believers. He says, I don't want to just see you in passing. In verse 7, he says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. They were partners in gospel ministry. He longed to be with them. Now, that doesn't mean that they, they got along in every area. Clearly, they did not. There were a lot of issues in this church, by the way. And I'm glad that we're not like the church in Corinth in the sense that they were, they were divided in so many different ways. And I've seen the grace of God in this church and that you do view each other as gospel partners and you do work through difficulties and you do work through reconciling differences. When you have offenses, you bring them up to each other. When, when there is something that's bothering you about the other person, you do what's biblical and you say, I'm gonna not let this offense sit. I'm gonna go and take 
that to my brother or sister and talk to them about it. So you do this, but at the same time, we need to be encouraged to continue to do that, to live in partnership, to not let differences or disagreements divide us, to long to be with each other. He says, but I can't do that now. I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. There's something interesting there. He says, a wide door for effective ministry is open to me. And then he says, and there are many adversaries. Now, when I think about doors being open for the gospel, I think about there being no adversaries, right? Well, I've got got all these doors opening the gospel, and and everybody's accepting and winsome. No, Paul doesn't say this. He says, all these doors for the gospel have opened up, gospel ministry doors have opened up, and there's a lot of opposition. And I'm going to stay here. Because the doors are opened up, and I'm being opposed, and I'm staying right here. Because sometimes as Christians, we, we don't think biblically about adversaries. Sometimes when maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your school, um, you, you think, well, I, I'm not really having many doors open up for me because for gospel ministry because um, there's adversaries. And, and Paul would say, no, it's, it's the reverse. On the contrary, sometimes we are opposed and have even more adversaries when the door for the gospel is wide open. In fact, when the gospel is preached clearly, we can assume that many adversaries are going to rise up because the greatest adversary, the devil, is opposed to the gospel. But, but he wants them to join together. He wants all of us to join together in gospel ministry. And, 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 and when those doors are opened up, you can expect that adversaries will come in, but we can partner together in the gospel. I... I Sometimes we can assume that when the gospel is preached clearly, people will just wonderfully respond. But you know, sometimes what happens is the darkness that's opposed to us rises up. It's kind of like a a scorpion rises its tail up and lifts it up when it sees a threat. But the presence of adversaries was no deterrent to Paul and shouldn't deter us from, from effective gospel work either. But because of these gospel opportunities that he has, and even though he expects adversaries to come in, he's going to send Timothy, his protege. So he tells him about sending Timothy, and he wants them to partner together with Timothy. Look in verse 10. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord. We, why should they put Timothy at ease? Why should they accept him? Why? Because he's doing the same work as he was. He was doing the same work as he was. And by the way, he's doing the same work that the Corinthians have been called to as well. Now, I don't know why he has to tell them to put Timothy at ease among them, meaning that as if Timothy has some reason to be concerned about them. Maybe when Timothy was there before, they didn't didn't treat him very nicely, or maybe they weren't so kind to him. Because in verse 11, look, look at verse 11, it says, let no one despise him. There was something there that was causing them to despise him. So he has to give a command. He says, let no one despise him. That's pretty shocking. You don't think of Timothy as someone to be despised. It might seem strange, but the reality is is that the potential for conflict is everywhere. And the church in Corinth was no stranger to conflict. There was conflict all over the place in the church in Corinth. And you know what? That's true for us today. Thanks be to God we don't have the same amount of conflict that the church in Corinth does. But you know what? Day to day, there's going to be conflict right here. And so we can apply this verse and let's, let's not despise each other. As fellow gospel ministers, we're doing the same work. Let's set people at ease. No matter what offense there might be, no matter what conflict there might be, whatever cause for despising there might be, let no one despise each other. 
A recent study was referenced by, I was reading the Center for Management and Organizational Effectiveness, noted that 85% of both individual contributors and leaders, 85% of individual contributors and leaders agreed that they experienced some amount of inevitable conflict at work. I don't know if that's low or not. 85% experienced some amount of conflict at work. Anybody here? Who's, who's experienced conflict at work? Put your hand up. Anybody? Okay. Who's experienced conflict in the church? Put your hand up. Now leave your hand up. Seriously, put your, put your hand up. Leave it. In. Now look around for a second. Okay. Good. You, you know what that is? That's an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. Instead of looking at conflict as something to divide us, conflict is an opportunity to say, I am not going to let things that the world lets or my desires, my wants, my needs to become a barrier to fellowship. No, the gospel says that we, are, we, can, we can join together because he's made us new. He's given us new desires, new hearts, a new mind. That we're not, not living selfishly to protect our own interests. And you think about the conflict you've had in the church. It's normally because somebody's offended us, done something to hurt us, or maybe make us feel low, to take us down a peg. Maybe they made us look bad. How does the gospel apply to that? The gospel says, you know what? I can actually be made lowly because Christ was made lowly for me. I, I can humble myself because Christ humbled himself for me. I can, I can not live as if my reputation is most important because Jesus set aside his reputation and, and lived for me. Don't know why people were looking down on Timothy. Maybe some were offended or mad. Maybe they thought less of him because he wasn't as educated as Paul was. Paul had the equivalent of several PhDs and, and Timothy, we don't know. But for us, we can join together in gospel partnerships, not despising those we're partnered with. And let me just pause for a second. Is there, is there anyone here? Now, don't, don't say that out loud. But if there's anybody here who you have offense against, don't despise them. Go to them. Do what the scripture says. Be reconciled to them. Show that the gospel is more important to you than any offense that you have against them. Go to them. Don't let anything come between us. Let, don't let that any, put, put that other person at ease. Don't despise them. Help them on their way in peace. Don't let anything come between us. Let us be a testimony and a witness to the reconciling grace of God on the cross in our daily relationships. Their partnerships meant that they could relate to each other peaceably. That is how the gospel is meant to affect us as well. It's meant to affect us in every way. Practically, personally, proportionally, purposefully, and in our partnerships too. The question is, do you, do you apply the gospel to your lives that way? Do you, are you applying, seeking to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life practically? Are you, are you seeking to do that personally, individually? Are you saying, Lord, I want to see what is my spiritual act of worship before you? Are you considering that? Are, are, you, are you giving proportionally? as God has caused you to prosper? Or are you just assuming that he's prospering you so you can add more to your wealth? Are you giving and are you relating to others purposefully? Or do you see your relationships with other believers in the church as gospel partnerships? Are you cultivating those gospel partnerships, not letting anything come between you, not letting any, any despising come between you, accepting them at peace? 
not letting them know that setting them at ease. The reality is we can only do all these things because of Christ. You see, Jesus, he, he personally, he practically answered our greatest needs. He, he practically answered our greatest need. Our greatest need was to have all of our sin paid for because all of our sin deserved God's wrath. And so Jesus very practically became a man and, and lived a human life so that he could in every way say no to sin and live in a way that was pleasing to God so that, that his pleasing life in every practical way that he lived, when he obeyed his parents, when he was respectful to people, when he gave to the poor, when, when he always did what God's law said, it would be applied to us. And then it was very personal. God doesn't distant from us. Jesus came as a man very personally, and he comes to each and every one of us personally. He gives of himself. And then also Jesus gave us proportionally too because he gave of all of his great riches he's given to us. And then we, we can look forward to the fact that the resurrection means that we will receive the riches of his inheritance in heaven. So we don't have to live for the riches here on earth. And he, he also came purposefully. He says that God actually purposed before the foundations of the world he planned to come and rescue us. God's a planning God. And he also comes and joins together in partnership. He calls people to join together in the work that he's doing and the work that he will equip them to do. That's how we can live this way. That's how we can live in response because of, of, of how Jesus has related to us and how he relates to us now. Because of the truth of the resurrection, we can be radically reoriented in our whole lives, knowing that our labors are not in vain. You know why? Because the gospel it radically reorients us to join together in gospel ministry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you get very practical, that you get real with us. Lord, and you challenge us to live our lives in very real ways, demonstrating that we've been affected and changed by you, that we've been reoriented in all of our thinking. Lord, may we live our lives as a living sacrifice because we are already holy and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. <clears throat>